Welcome to the Golden Hind Podcast, where we'll be chatting about everything from Francis Drake's circumnavigation of the world to the Spanish Armada, Elizabethan seafaring, pirates, to the adventures of our full-scale reconstruction in the heart of London. This episode of the Golden Hind Podcast is presented by... Hello, my name is Pete, and I'm one of the education officers at the Golden Hind, and welcome to another episode of the Golden Hind Podcast. Now, in the 1970s, our reconstructed Golden Hind crossed the Atlantic Ocean. It sailed through the Panama Canal and then headed north to San Francisco. And a key part of its mission was to commemorate the 400th anniversary of Francis Drake's landing in California, where he entreated with the local people, assumed he'd been made a king of sorts, and claimed the land for Queen Elizabeth I. He called it Nova Albion, or New England. But is this what really happened? Did Drake really land in California? And if he didn't, why do so many people think he did? These are the questions we'll be discussing on the podcast today, because we are joined by Melissa Darby, who is a visiting scholar and research faculty in the Anthropology Department at Portland State University. She is a principal investigator and sole proprietor of the Lower Columbia Research and Archaeology, and has worked for over 30 years as an archaeologist and historian in the Northwest. And her recent book, Thunder Go North, The Hunt for Sir Francis Drake's Fair and Good Bay, tackles this vexed question of where Francis Drake landed the Golden Hind in the summer of 1579. Welcome, Melissa. Well, hello. It's good to be here. It's great to have you on the show. And I think it's fair to say that this is a surprisingly fierce historical debate. Um, The first chapter of your fascinating book, Thunder Go North, is titled The Problem. What is this problem that you're referring to? Well, for years and years, people have believed that Drake was in California. And it's uh, it's been a debate among academics and amateur historians alike. And it's gotten quite fierce where there's uh, people are uh, are in are have established booster groups and then they fight with each other and compete with each other to see how many historians can uh, um, support their point of view. And in California, there's three bays that have uh, clubs that are uh, support their their uh, idea that Drake was there. In Oregon, there are two. In Washington State, there's one. And on Vancouver Island in Canada, there's another group. And so um, uh, it's not that we we uh, all get along very well, but sometimes it can get quite uh, quite heated amongst these amongst and between these groups. So we don't know where Francis Drake landed in 1579. Not for sure. Is that right? Not for sure, no. And and in your book, you talk about something called the gap. Could you explain what this is for our listeners at home? Ah, the gap. Well, the official account uh, that Heklut wrote in Principal Navigation said that Drake came in and saw land at about 42 or 43 degrees, then sailed south because the ship was leaking. She was leaking badly because the stormy seas off the northwest coast of America had opened her seams and widened the leak she'd had in her hull since she was off the coast of Panama. And this was early June, and she had been at sea since mid-April. They were pumping water desperately to, to keep up with the leak, but they needed a safe harbor. The coastline was pretty rough, but eventually they found what they called their fair and good bay, 
The official account that Hakluyt wrote said it was at 38 degrees north. So they went in there and uh, spent either five or ten weeks. The the accounts differ, and and then repaired the ship and then sailed across the Pacific Ocean. So I found uh, that the Harley manuscript at the British Library is actually a draft version of Hakluyt's chapter. It took me a while to figure it out, but when I looked at this manuscript, there were crossouts, um, little pointed fingers saying uh, "insert text here." And and I and you know, as I was writing my book, I realized, well, this is an editor. Someone was this. This is an edited version, and it's and it's just like the final chapter, except for some minor details. And one of them was. The latitudes. So the latitudes in this draft version, before the censors uh, took a heavy pen to it, the draft version of, of Hakluyt's chapter said they came in at 48 degrees north, which is Vancouver Island or southern Canada, and then sailed down to 44 degrees north where they found their fare in Good Bay. So here we have this gap between where they said they went and where they actually went. And they they put in the official account that they went down to 38 degrees, I believe, because it was uh, the northern boundary of New Spain. It was a land grab. Now, would Queen Elizabeth and Sir Francis Drake uh, claim about 10 degrees more of land uh, for England just to to bump out Spain, of course they would. <laughs> so that's the gap. I see. So you've got these contemporary or I guess near contemporary accounts of the voyage that disagree by by some distance where it was right. Drake landed in that summer. And, and that kind of has geopolitical implications. And I guess that was my next question. Why, why do you think there was so much confusion between these accounts? How did that happen? And why don't we have a definitive answer to this question? Well, Spain was Spain was their enemy, was England's enemy at that time. This was before um, 1588 uh, and, and the proposed invasion of England by Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a lot of intrigue. Spies were everywhere. There was a lot going on. And Drake's mission was a secret mission. Even, even when... Uh, they sailed out of the harbor. The, most of the sailors didn't know where they were going. They thought they were going to Egypt to load a, uh, a boatload of currents. Um, but soon they found out they were going to the Great South Sea or the Pacific. And uh, it was a secret mission under the guise of piracy. The queen wanted to be able to to deny that she had anything to do with it. So Drake, the pirate, went out under the queen's orders <laughs> to to go into through Magellan Strait and raid up and down the coast and look for lands not uh, settled by any Christian prince. Um, but she had to have deniability because things were really tense with Spain. So um, it was a secret mission. When he got back. The sailors and everyone on the voyage was uh, sworn to secrecy on pain of death, not to let anyone know where they had been. So then they, Walsingham and, and Drake and the Queen probably huddled and said, well, let's claim down to here. 
Um, but by the tenants of the time, they couldn't have claimed down to 38 degrees because if he hadn't seen it and, and claimed it, he, he legally, they couldn't have taken it, but, but they did. And it was a land grab. And so that's why the latitudes were written inconsistently in the various accounts. So for Drake and his contemporaries, then the difference between landing in Oregon and landing in California was, was quite serious. It had quite serious political implications. But why do you think that the search for this location has captured the imagination of so many modern historians, particularly those in California? Well, California was a gold rush state. In 1849, there was a gold rush and it drew thousands of people from the East Coast to the West Coast. Now they call themselves and they still call themselves the golden state. California is the golden state. And they've always identified with Drake. He's their golden son. A highway is named after him. He's celebrated as the first English explorer on the coast. You know, this swashbuckling story of Drake, his golden horn, he had hoard, he had a huge amount of treasure with him. All his adventures resonated with these uh, Californians, these early Californians, and they embraced him as a native son. So much so that in 1893, the Episcopal Bishop of California um, proposed to erect a, a Celtic stone cross at Drake's Bay to commemorate the first English language sermon and first use of the Book of Common Prayer on the soil of what is now the United States. Wow. Uh, eventually, it got put up at, uh, in, in San Francisco at Golden Gate Park at the highest knob in Golden Gate Park. And this, uh, this cross... Uh, when it was built, was the largest cross in the world, composed of 68 sandstone blocks. It's 57 feet high. And uh, still there's annual celebrations at Drake's Prayer Book Cross in Golden Gate Park. That's amazing. And, and it's amazing the lengths that people have gone to to try and claim particular bays and particular areas. For those of you at home that don't know, according to some accounts of Drake's voyage, Drake left an engraved brass plaque at his landing spot. So obviously, if this was ever found, it would provide pretty powerful evidence for the location of the landing. And I think I'm right in saying, Melissa, that in the 1930s, a group of historians in California tried to plant a fake? Yes, I figured that out. when I, did, I had no idea that this book would take me to these links, but um, I... Uh, I figured out that the historian that authenticated the plate of brass as an authentic artifact from Drake was the one that created it. And this is such a shame. Historians just should not do this at all. But um, he did it because there was uh, two women, one archaeologist and one historian, uh, Eva Taylor from London, and the archaeologist was Zelia Nuttall, who was working in Mexico. And they both found documents and evidence that Drake was further north. In fact, in 1915, Zelia Nuttall gave a paper at a very important history conference uh, in San Francisco describing this, and that this was a great find, and that you are all wrong, and, and uh, Drake was farther north. Well, that she was met with a lot of coldness from the white male historians, including uh, Herbert Bolton, and uh, she tried to publish her work, and he controlled a lot of the editorial boards, and these, these golden state people did not want to lose Drake, and so they pretty much 
um, shut her down and she went back to Mexico kind of with a, um, a bad feeling about these men. And uh, later on, uh, Eva Taylor um, in London, uh, his uh, tutor expert, she found some documents and she wrote a book and she had several articles. And at one point she figured out that uh, the languages that, or the words and phrases that Drake and Fletcher, his chaplain, recorded sounded a lot like Chinookan, a Chinookan language. And as soon as that came out, there was a, a, a couple other books came out and the, the paradigm started to change. And people were now thinking that, well, wait a minute, Drake might have been on the Northwest Coast. Let's start to look. Well, just as that was coming <laughs> to, coming in, uh, the plate of brass was found on a, on a drive in Marin County, California. A man named Beryl Shin uh, went, had a, a flat tire. He went for a hike and uh, climbed a hill and was throwing rocks down a hill, and he pulled his plate out from under a rock cairn. And lo and behold, it said Drake on it. And eventually he he showed it to uh, Herbert Bolton. And I think this was sort of an Easter egg hunt because uh, Herbert Bolton was a professor at Berkeley, the University of California at Berkeley. And he'd been telling his students for years, go out to Marin County. We know there's evidence of Drake. Look for the plate of brass. Now, this should have been suspicious, this kind of call out should have been suspicious from the beginning but um i don't know maybe in the 30s people bought this kind of stuff more uh, readily but but anyway so uh mr shin brought the plate to bolton and he got excited and announced it to his history class the next day and and uh, it was just there was a lot of fanfare well his job was to 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 really make it a big deal and then downplay the fact that it doesn't look right. And a lot of the um, historians that looked at it said the wording isn't right and it looks pretty cheesy. It just doesn't look right. Well, he kept playing it up and he was a very important historian. He had, uh, he's, he'd been the president of the American Historical uh, Association. He, uh, he uh, was knighted by the King of Spain, and uh, the Pope gave him some award. I mean, he had many, many master's students under him and plenty of doctoral students. He was very influential. He wrote uh, a lot of textbooks, and he was just, he was a big deal. And for someone of that big of a deal to say that this was authentic, the weight of his uh, um, word was huge. and so. After a year, he finally sent it out and got got it analyzed. It wasn't a very good analysis, and uh, he uh, announced it at uh, the Sir Francis Drake Hotel. We have a it's an authentic artifact, so that's what people believe. But but I found in this whole journey, you know, when I started looking at letters between him and Zelia Nuttall and the obvious uh, dislike they had for each other, and I, I started to look in. Bolton's own papers, and I found that he was the author of uh, the last will and testament of a famous Spanish explorer. That was obviously a fake, and and uh, he he talked about pirate treasure, John Jacob Astor's 
uh, treasure came from pirates and not from the fur trade. And all these things were, were hoaxes. And a historian shouldn't do this kind of thing, but he, he, he liked to pull the wool over people's eyes. And if he was caught, he just said, oh, that was just a joke. That was his uh, way of doing things. So uh, that, it, that plate, that plate of brass, everyone believed was real until 1977. So between 1937 and 1977, everyone said, well, it's a done deal. Of course, Drake was in California. Uh, the plate is proof. But uh, once the plate became uh, uh, declared a hoax, people didn't look further north because that was around the time of the 400th anniversary and everyone was celebrating in California. Wow. I mean, it is amazing the lengths that people seem to have gone to claim the location of this uh, fair and good bay for themselves. It's, it's a little bit unbelievable, really, isn't it? Um, yeah. And I mean, yes, hoaxes involving plaques aside. You've utilized an incredible array of evidence to try and narrow down the location. So where is it? What's the answer? <laughs> I believe it's at Whale Cove on the Oregon coast. This was first proposed by uh, Bob Ward in the 1970s, though there's some people had been visiting the coast from the 50s and brought it up. But um, given the uncensored account, uh, um, it states that the fair and good bay was at 44 degrees north. This is the anonymous narrative or Harley manuscript. And so looking in that vicinity, an excellent match with the geography of the vicinity and shape of the cove is Whale Cove, which is just north of Newport, Oregon. And uh, it has a peninsula, a cape to the south. I mean, it, it, it just is such a good fit. I believe it's well cold, but I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure. Well, we'll let the listeners at home make up their own mind. But if you are interested, <laughs> if you don't have a copy of um, Thunder Go North in front of you, you Google a picture of Whale Cove. Um, I think you'll be able to see exactly what Melissa's talking about here. It does seem to match the descriptions, doesn't it? Yeah, and uh, the Hondias broadside map has a little inset on it that is is Drake's Fair and, and Good Bay. And it's, it's a, a perfect match for that. Also, if you look at the Dudley manuscript charts um, that are in Munich, which I did, there uh, he drew the Fair and Good Bay in two different places in it. It's just a match, and including the depths of the cove at the mouth and inside. It's just, and I don't know what the chances of that, but I think it's, it's uh, pretty good that it's well covered. And in what ways do the surviving accounts of Drake's circumnavigation point to this landing in, in Whale Cove in Oregon? Um, lots of them obviously were unfortunately hidden away or lost, but we do have some accounts. What can we learn from them? Well, one of, one of the best ones was uh, John Drake. He was 14 or 15 years old on the voyage, and he was um, uh, Drake's cabin boy, and they painted together and so forth. And so um, John Drake was captured shortly after the voyage ended, and, and uh, he went on the, the follow-up voyage. He was captured on the follow-up voyage, and he gave two depositions to the Spanish about where they had been 
And um, he said that they were up uh, along the northwest coast, he, 48 degrees, and that the landing, um, he switched it in one of his accounts, but the, but uh, it sounded like the landing was at 44 degrees. So he, why would he lie? He, I don't. I mean, I think that, that he was telling the truth because this was before the censored account came out. This was um, pretty shortly after the voyage. So I think that John Drake was was um, telling the truth in his deposition, even though he was a prisoner. He may have been, have been tortured, and that's so unreliable. But um, I think uh, I think we can rely on uh, John Drake. And you mentioned earlier some maps um obviously drake and other crew members made maps and sketches during the voyage and they've been lost but derivatives were made so can they tell us anything sure the the um the map that drake presented the queen is known as the whitehall map it's it's long lost but there's been copies of that the um french drake map and the van site maps they show uh that Drake was further north on the coast. Of course, the scale of the map is the whole Western Hemisphere, but they consistently show that Drake was further north than 42 degrees. And the silver map of the world, which was uh, a commemoration of Drake's voyage, made probably with silver that Drake had captured from the Spanish, uh, it also shows that Drake was up at around 40 eight degrees. Um, the, there's various Molino globes and uh, they were um, very important and they sh- and um, Heckloot said that they were uh, they reflected the most secret uh, of the voyages and so I think he was alluding to Drake's voyage and it also shows that uh, Drake was further north and part of it was scratched out on the on the uh, on the ink where he went, but it it does show that he was much farther north than 42 degrees north. So I think my favourite part of your book is your comparison of Drake uh, and Francis Fletcher, Drake's chaplain's description of the Native American people they meet with archaeological and anthropological evidence of Native American cultures on the West Coast. You've tried to find a match. What do Drake and Fletcher's accounts describe? Well, they they were with the Native Americans for either five or ten weeks, and they described their clothing and their regalia, their canoes and their houses. For example, the um, they said that their houses were digged round; they were semi underground, and that they had uh, plank roofs that met at the top and had had dirt thrown on top of them. Well, that's an exact match for the houses on the central and southern Oregon coast where the um, the Coos and the Coquille and the Rogue people, they excavated down around round uh, uh, oval-shaped hole in the ground. Then they put the planks up touching each other on the top and sealed it with uh, soil and moss put on top. That's an exact match. Drake said that inside the houses it was like being in the scuttle of a ship. And that is a, a, a cozy, tight house that the, these, these Native Americans built. And on the California coast, the Miwok people had mat houses or grass houses with willow bough frames. And this is t- not, a, not even close to what Drake was describing. 
uh, Drake also said the people had canoes. He didn't describe the canoes exactly, but canoe connotes that it's a wooden vessel on the California coast. The vessels, the the uh, the vessels that the Miwok paddled were actually tule uh, tule rafts. They didn't have enough wood there um, to to make uh, these large wooden canoes. And on the Northwest Coast, wooden canoes were ubiquitous, and they, they were famous. They're great. Uh, even today, they have canoe races, and these are just the most beautiful and swift uh, vessels you could ever imagine, made out of a cedar tree, one cedar log. Um, the other thing they described are the baskets. Uh, uh, Drake said that they they had uh, um, they made baskets that had dangling uh, shell beads and uh, they had they were wrought upon by matted red feathers. Well, on the Oregon coast to this day, they <laughs> they have baskets that are decorated with the the twisted uh, uh, feathers of red-headed woodpeckers that are wound around sinew string. And then embroidered onto their baskets. Um, now they they usually use either silk thread or um, uh, or or red beads to do the same sort of type of design. But the ancestor of of that is the matted red uh, feathers of the uh, red-headed woodpecker. So there's several of these things that match, including the the use of plant fluff. Drake mentioned that the the men ha, uh, had headwear that had was stuck with plant fluff, and remember Drake was a merchant, and he was looking for things to trade. And this plant fluff might have been something that he recognized that would be useful, like cotton perhaps, because it had a long, um, uh, a long fiber that could be woven. Um, and on the Oregon coast, the Native Americans used firewood fluff for all sorts of things. They would weave it into um, with dog wool to make uh, cloaks and hats and uh, other warm clothing. And uh, on uh, on the California coast, there's no recorded uh, note of of any use of plant fluff. And here on the Oregon coast and the California, Oregon and Washington coast in the northwest part of the U.S., um, this is well known. And it goes on and on. There's several other things that uh, that I brought out in the book that are good matches. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like when you compare Drake and Fletcher's accounts to what we know about the variety of Native American cultures and languages um, which existed along the west coast, that there is quite a good match. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's quite a good match, and um, I think it's I I think it's irrefutable. I'd I'd like to see one of those clubs in California take it point by point and say, no, this you're wrong, Melissa, on this and this and this. But I don't think they can. And the title of your book is Thunder Go North, and that's reference to even more evidence, isn't it? Which points right. to landing, right? Um, this is to do with Drake being confused for a god, is that right? That's it. Well, you know, Drake's calling card was to sail into a bay and, and uh, shoot off his cannon. So um, the Native Americans on the Oregon coast had never seen Europeans. Um, they did have a tradition that um, when it thundered, you say, thunder go north. 
uh, uh, go up north where the people mistreat your fish because they believe the thunder god was the god of all fishes. And there's, there's um, rivalries among the Native Americans on the Oregon and Washington coast because one group feels that they butcher fish the wrong way and salmon isn't very important anyway. So um, they make fun of each other about how they butcher their fish. So uh, they have this idea, or they had traditional times, they had this idea that when it thundered, it was God, it was the thunder God punishing them for mistreating the fish, either um, throwing the guts uh, on the ground instead of in the fire or in the water, or doing something that would offend the fish and and thunder, the god of all fish. So um, when it thundered, they'd say, thunder, go north where the, where the people mistreat your fish. Don't strike us here. So um, when I was reading these ethnographic accounts, I thought, oh my gosh, that they thought he was thunder. So I looked deeper into it. And when it thunders, you're supposed to throw things in the fire and sacrifice them to the god thunder because they'll they'll float up in the smoke and go to thunder. And so when Drake landed and they met him and they they believed he was thunder, at least that's what I postulate. They they started throwing stuff in the fire to him, even though he was standing right there. They were burning their baskets and their their necklaces, and they were chanting. and And Drake was like stop it guys don't do it and so um he had a hard time convincing them that he wasn't a god and they never were convinced that he was just a man and that, and even as he was leaving they built this big bonfire and they were throwing valuables on it as sending him these valuables um because that's what they thought that he wanted they were they were um uh, trying to make up for examples of them not uh taking care of the fish in the right way, or maybe they dropped a fish one time and, and didn't take care of it the way tradition told them to. And so they had guilty conscience. So they were making these sacrifices and saying, go north, don't strike us here. I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating. And if you're as fascinated by this as I am, I really do recommend going out and reading the book um, where Melissa goes into incredible detail about all of this. Um, I actually want to read a short section from the book now, something which caught my attention. Uh, there is a remote but nevertheless real possibility that the elaborate embroidery and even the cut of Depot Charlie's pants and jacket could in fact be cultural memes of the Elizabethan visitors who wore embroidered doublets, jerkins and breeches. So what's going on here? Who is Depot Charlie? What is a cultural meme, and why is that interesting in relation to the landing con controversy? Uh, Depot Charlie was a Native American. He was born in a village at the mouth of the Rogue River. He was a well-known tribal leader on the Siletz Reservation, um, and he also uh, owned land around Well Cove, including several large parcels. Um, uh, and a cultural meme is a memory that is kept in a visual way. So, for example, in Hawaii, they found carved effigies that predate the voyage of Captain James Cook in 1778. And these effigies look like lions or stylized lions. And so they, 
they think that there had been other visitors who had uh, maybe a figurehead or something. And so the natives in Hawaii picked up that idea. And there was also um, uh, gourd helmets and so forth that they think looked like the Spanish helmets. And so we know there had been European visitors prior to Cook in Hawaii, and they, they're only evidenced by these cultural memes. Um, so uh, when, I, when I understood that I should look for a cultural meme, I started looking at the earliest photographs we have of the Native Americans on the, on the coast. And um, I looked at Depot Charlie's um, pants and the cut of his vest. And these, uh, these garments are not typically Native American type of garments and they looked very different to me and it's it's a pretty remote possibility I have to say but um the fleur-de-lis on his pants the decorations and the plants look in in his pants looked like uh the fleur-de-lis on the queen's standard just sort of a random upside down up and down if you look at that and I might be reading too much into that so I'm heavily qualifying that but people should look at that and think about it it's a fascinating theory either way so there's another great section where you compare the possibility that drake's crew either became acquainted with ground squirrels or muskrats what on earth have muskrats got to do with narrowing down the location of drake's landing <laughs> well this has been part of the debate in california they they believe or what the drake's bay group believes that drake was describing an animal that uh uh, is the pocket gopher there. And the pocket gopher is it's about as big as a hamster and uh, has a short little tail. And uh, Drake was describing an animal that um, had a long bald tail, hands, hands like a mole. It carried its food in its cheeks and it had a beautiful pelt. And the Native Americans used this pelt for their, their cloaks. Even the king wore it as his cloak. And uh, they also ate the bodies of the uh, of, of this uh, fur-bearing animal. So uh, the Drake's Bay people say it was a pocket gopher. The people who believe it was in San Francisco Bay say, oh, it was a squirrel. And so they argue over over the, the golden fleece was the title of this argument, uh, uh, an article describing this. But... <laughs> On the Oregon coast and in Oregon, uh, one of the most common mammals we have is the muskrat. And it has a long bald tail, hands like a mole, carries its food in its cheeks. And the Native Americans used its pelt um, ubiquitously because it, it was lightweight, warm, and waterproof. And in the Northwest, waterproof is very important. <laughs> and so uh, even uh, the early explorers that came here and wrote uh, accounts of the Native Americans describe the, uh, the, the muskrat fur cloaks that the people wore. They also wore, you know, beaver skin pelts and others and deer skin and so forth. But um, the muskrat fur was very important to them. And so um, Drake and Fletcher described this uh, animal as similar to the Barbary coney or the Cape Hyrax, which looks a lot like a muskrat and nothing like a pocket gopher or a squirrel. And I know in England you have squirrels, and if they had seen a squirrel, they would have said a squirrel. Mm. So um, I'm I'm 
pretty sure that that uh, they were describing the uh, muskrat. And, you know, there had already been a fur trade started on the East Coast. Uh, France was importing some furs from that area. And uh, um, I think Drake was looking for commodities. And this uh, muskrat fur is still a commodity. You still can um, uh, go out and trap muskrats and sell the fur. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a money-making uh, uh, a thing. And I think that uh, Drake recognized it as such. So as I said earlier, I mean, from muskrats to maps to uh, cultural memes, I mean, I think you've used a fantastic array of evidence to, to back up your theory. Do you think that we're ever going to solve the mystery? Do you think we're going to get agreement among historians or are there always going to be those who say, no, he was a California boy? Uh, I don't know. It's it's pretty hard to remove Drake from California. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty hard. I'm getting some pushback and that's okay. That's okay. Um, I know that there's more information out there. I thought that once my book comes out and it's it's uh, more widely read, people will say, well, wait a minute, when we were digging at this site, we found this and we didn't understand that that was a historic artifact. And we just thought maybe it was from, you know, a, a stray vessel from Japan. Well, anyway, so there might be some more things bubbling up. Um, and I know there's probably more information in, uh, in uh, archives in the UK for example, the Harley manuscript manuscript that I found, um, I think that if someone looked at the handwriting and to, and looked to see if there's any other matches of a known scribe in Hakluyt's employment, that would really nail it down. Um, also, Drake was given these long uh, shell bead necklaces. I wonder if he took one back to Buckland Abbey and one of them broke and they swept it out and an archaeological excavation might have found one of those little shell beads and then we could find it and source it and see if it was from California or Oregon maybe. That's a possibility. Um, I think maybe someday there'll be some more excavation around uh, Whale Cove or up and down the coast near there. There was a tsunami that kind of wiped it all out in 1700, but in some of the higher areas, there might be an archaeological site where intact uh, uh, sediments may reveal an English artifact or a coin or something, but that's, that's for the future. Well, there we go. A call of call to arms. Uh, historians <laughs> and archaeologists, the search for the fair and good bay continues. Um, Melissa, it's been absolutely fantastic having you uh, on the show today. It's been really fascinating. Um, and your book, Thunder Go North, is, is, a, is a brilliant read. Well, thank you so much, Peter. It's been so wonderful to be on here and best wishes to you. That was the Golden Hind podcast. For more information, head over to our website, goldenhind.co.uk. Remember, there's a letter E on the end of Goldenhind. You'll find videos, blogs, educational resources, and of course, all the details you'll need to come and visit us. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>